New Testament contains four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, in and of itself, this is a rather curious fact. Since these Gospels are supposed to be the authoritative accounts of the life and person of Jesus, you would think that Christians would have just chosen one, or maybe that they would have tried to summarize the four into a single account. In fact, some early Christians attempted to do just that. In the second century, an early Christian apologist by the name of Tatian, he tried to combine all four of the Gospels into a single account that could be used as a replacement for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, he wrote this summary in Syriac, and he called it the Diatessaron. But as well-intentioned as Tatian was, the broader church chose not to use his gospel. Despite the ease of having just one life of Jesus, the church chose to keep the four that they already had, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you read through these gospels in the New Testament, you'll notice a lot of similarities, at least with the first three. But then when you get to the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, you'll notice that something has changed. John isn't like the other three Gospels. Each of them include a lot of stories of miracles and healings, things that John never mentions. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus has numerous disagreements with groups like the Pharisees over things like Jewish rituals and Sabbath observance. But John says nothing about that. And unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John makes no mention whatsoever of really important moments like Jesus' temptation in the wilderness or his final supper with his disciples. Not only that, John doesn't even mention Jesus' parables or his teaching about the kingdom of heaven. Instead, John records a lot of conversations and extended teachings that the other three Gospels never even mention. And this has led some scholars who study these Gospels, it's led them to question whether John actually wrote his Gospel with the same intention that Tatian did. Was he trying to replace Matthew, Mark, and Luke with his own very different account of Jesus? And others think that John wasn't so much trying to replace the other three Gospels as he was trying to help people understand their, their true meaning. The church father Clement of Alexandria, for instance, he said that the purpose of John's gospel is to instruct us in the higher spiritual meaning of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Uh, years later, the Protestant reformer John Calvin said something kind of similar. He said that whereas the first three gospels give us an accurate account of who Jesus was, it is John who provides us with the key to understanding Jesus' deeper significance. Matthew, Mark, and Luke help us come to know the man Jesus, but John, Calvin said, well, John offers us a window into his very soul. Uh, the truth is, we don't know precisely how John thought that his gospel was related to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or whether he was even aware of their existence. But we do know why John wrote his gospel, because he tells us, actually, right at the end of chapter 20, when he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, 
the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So there you go. The purpose of the Gospel of John is twofold. First, that we might understand who Jesus really is, and second, that by coming to understand who Jesus is, we may, as John puts it, have life. So that's what we'll be focusing on in this study over the next eight sessions. First, who is Jesus, according to John? And second, what does it mean to say that Jesus enlivens us, that we have life in his name? And for this first session, I'd like to focus our attention on a section that's often referred to as the prologue of John's gospel. It includes the first 18 verses of chapter 1. Although, maybe prologue is not the best description of these verses. Because usually the purpose of a prologue in a story is to give you context, to tell you things you need to understand before the story begins. But that's not exactly what these 18 verses are doing. They're not just setting the context. In many ways, these 18 verses are in fact giving a concise summary of John's main message. That's why, uh, according to the missionary bishop Leslie Newbigin, we should think of this section less as a prologue than as an overture. Because, he says, like the overture of an opera, they announce in brief form the great themes which will be developed as the story unfolds. So what stands out about this overture? Well, the first thing that stands out is where John chooses to begin. It's different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mark begins his gospel with the arrival of John the Baptist. And Matthew begins his by tracing the story of Jesus all the way back to Abraham. And Luke starts off with the births of John the Baptist and Jesus, but then he goes even further than Matthew. And he traces Jesus' genealogy all the way back to the first man, Adam. But John surpasses them all. John doesn't start with Abraham or Adam or John the Baptist. John begins his story before human history even begins, even before time itself. John begins with the same three words that we read at the very beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis, in the beginning. Now, another interesting thing about these verses is that even though they're all about the Son of God, this overture section, John never actually mentions him by name. He doesn't call him Jesus or the Christ or the Son as he does so often later. No, he refers to the Son with the use of two titles, Word and Light. Now, both of these titles are significant for John, but in this section, I'd like to focus our attention on the one with which he begins, what he says in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Why does John refer to Jesus here as the Word? Have you ever wondered that? He doesn't do it later on in the Gospel. In fact, verse 1 and verse 14 are the only occasions in the whole Gospel that John uses this title. So why here? Now, a lot of people have suggested that this reference to the Son as the word, the Greek word logos, as the logos. This is John's way of engaging with uh, ancient Greek philosophy. After all, people point out, Stoic philosophers also like to talk about some kind of logos as a, 
a kind of divine reason or an eternal principle that's manifested in creation. And Platonic and Aristotelian philosophers, they spoke in a similar way about the divine mind. So maybe John's using a concept from Greek philosophy to, to build a bridge with these thinkers. Well, maybe. A more likely explanation might be that John isn't so much referring to Greek philosophy as he is to Hebrew scripture. After all, the God of the Old Testament is a God who interacts with creation and with his people, primarily with his word. He speaks to them. Now think about it. How does Genesis say that God created the world? He speaks. It is by his word that he brings light and order and life into existence. And how does he engage with human beings, these human beings that he creates? Well, with his word. He speaks. He talks with Adam and Eve and then with Cain and then with Noah. And then just think about all those others, Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Samuel, David. How do they experience God? Well, as a voice, as one who breaks into their lives because he has something to say. Now, John, of course, knew all of this. So when he talks about this one who is the Word, this one through whom all things were created, he's not just thinking in terms of Greek philosophical concepts. He's thinking about the God who said, let there be light, and there was light. The God who called Abram and told him to leave his home country, who spoke to Israel from the top of a dark mountain, who addressed Moses out of a burning bush with a voice. John is reminding his readers, not just of a general notion of God, but of that God. And no doubt, John's also reminding us of just how majestic and overpowering and untamable that God is. Because there's something about encountering God by his word Something that's overwhelming with that. There's a reason that, that that is how God's people experienced him. The Jewish philosopher Leon Kass, he talks about this in our experience of, of hearing. Here's what he says. Sound assaults us even with our eyes closed. A hearing being is at the mercy of sound or voice, which intrudes upon him without his asking, even against his will. There are no ear lids to protect us. Sound compels us to attend. We have no choice but to hear, even if we then choose not to listen. Now, Cass goes on to contrast this experience of, of being overwhelmed, assaulted by sound to our experience of seeing. Sound, he says, assaults us, but, but sights present themselves to us for our study, for our contemplation. It is by seeing, by, by looking closely at things. That's how we come to know them in a deeper and a more intimate way. I'm very intrigued by what Cass says about hearing and seeing, and I think it's very helpful for understanding the significance of what John says when he goes on in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. St. Augustine said that when he converted from being a Platonist to being a Christian, 
This claim that John is making, this was the most difficult claim for him to accept. Uh, Platonists like him, he said, they could accept this idea that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Uh, they might have their own way of understanding it, but that made sense enough. But the Word became flesh? No self-respecting philosopher in the Greek or Roman world, no, no Roman intellectual could possibly believe such an idea. And who could blame them? After all, flesh, flesh is weak. Flesh hungers and thirsts and tires. Flesh is vulnerable to cold and to heat and to injury and to attack. And you can poke flesh and prod it and slap it and spit on it. And over time, flesh, flesh decays. Flesh is mortal. And yet, as the writer Frederick Buechner puts it, that is what incarnation means. It is untheological. It is unsophisticated. It is undignified. But according to Christianity, it is the way things are. Uh, that is no doubt exactly how John's words would have sounded to ancient readers, as unsophisticated and undignified. But John doesn't care. He's just telling it how it is. Now the question though is, why? Why does this word who is God, this untamable, unresistible, overwhelming God that we encounter in the Old Testament, why does he become mortal flesh? Well, you remember what I said, the point I made just a moment ago about the difference between sound and sight? What Leon Cass says about how sound overwhelms us, but, but sights enable us to come to know things in a deeper and more intimate way? Well, it seems that John is very attentive to this difference between sound and sight. Because right after saying that the Word became flesh, he tells us the significance of that. And we have seen His glory, he says. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. And then a couple of verses later, just to drive the point home, he writes, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made Him known. No one has ever seen God. No one can see God. The only way that we can encounter God, at least the only way that we could encounter God, is through His Word. But all that changed when the Word became flesh. Now we aren't just overwhelmed by God's glory, as those Israelites might have been as they sat at the base of Mount Sinai. Now, John says, now we can see that glory. And not just see. As John himself puts it elsewhere in his first epistle, in 1 John chapter 1, that, that which we have heard, he says, now we have seen with our eyes and looked upon and touched with our hands. Several years ago, I was teaching a, a theology class to some undergraduates, and we're reading this little book by a Lutheran theologian, and he started talking about what it means for a person to have a body. And I realized as we were talking about it that I never really given much thought to that before. Now, sure, I've certainly thought about bodies. I've thought about my body and how I'd like to change my body. But I'd never thought before about the significance of just having a body at all. 
But his explanation of it was very interesting. Suppose I were lecturing, he said. I were lecturing along and, and I had no body. My soul was present, but my body has gone away and I'm just, a, I'm just a voice that you hear. But then he said, you know, if you were offended by what I'm saying and you want to throw me out of the window, or if you're delighted in what I said and you want to come up and congratulate me for such a marvelous lecture, well, either way, you wouldn't know where to find me. And if you can imagine that scenario, he says, you can begin to understand why having a body is so significant. Because the body of a person, he says, the body of a person is the person himself or herself insofar as that person is available to other persons. Now, maybe all this sounds very abstract and philosophical to you, but if you think about it, it actually sheds some light on the significance of John's claim that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In Matthew's Gospel, we are told about a time when an angel visits Joseph to tell him about the child Mary is going to have. And the angel says that the child's name will be Emmanuel, which is a Hebrew word that means God with us. And John, John never uses that title for Jesus. But you could say that in these introductory verses, in this prologue, in this overture, John is telling us the same thing. What John is saying is that the God who predates the cosmos, the God who calls creation into being with his word, the God whose overwhelming speech we can neither contain nor resist, that God has taken a body for himself. He has made himself available to us. He's made it possible for himself to be seen and to be touched and to be addressed. But what John is saying, this is profound, is that God is with us in this way. Because as Jesus himself will say later on in John chapter 15, as we'll see, because this God, this one who said, let there be light, he doesn't just want us as servants. Jesus says the reason that he comes into this world, that he takes on a body, that he becomes flesh, is because he wants us as friends. That is why the word became flesh. That is the message at the heart of John's gospel.